Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have, for the first time, Jared Murphy. Thanks for coming on, Jared. Yes, for the first time in <laughs> how long? A week. <laughs> it's been longer than that. You were on my show. Uh, it was just like two days ago. <laughs> it it's like... not like just... Yeah, but you're the one who's out uh, for everyone out there for revealing the magic. Gary's ahead a few shows. Always. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's not like anyone's going to hear this for like a week or two. Right. Uh, or worse, I have to text you and find out if my shows have ever been posted. It only happened <laughs> once. At least I <laughs> That's didn't, right. At least I didn't do the amateur move of deleting it. Here we go. Here we go. Yep. <laughs> yes, for everyone out there, hear it from my own lips, not just from Gary's. I recorded, and by record, I mean I did an entire interview with Gary for almost two hours and literally overwrote the recording the next day. So for amateur moves, I, Jared, am guilty of completely deleting the entire interview that Gary spent the generous amount of time he had to record with me. So he had to re-record, which he did uh, to spend less time in purgatory. He did re-record an, an interview with me after I overwrote his uh, interview, which for everyone out there who doesn't love Zoom yet already, just so you know, Zoom's not very smart in that it doesn't automatically give itself another uh recording number when you do multiple recordings it assumes that every zoom call is your first and only zoom so if you go to record it it also doesn't even warn you or ask you to re um hey are you sure you want to write over the last interview no zoom just tells you to do it <laughs> and so to, to, to so despite my system administrator network engineering background i'm not computer illiterate I will say that there, I would argue, I'm going to blame this on some programming. So, so here's, here's how, how I used to do it when I used to record on Zoom. Is I'd record an episode, and then right after I recorded it, I would move it into a separate folder. And I would name the folder after the name of the guest. Very clever. Yeah, so now I'm doing that. I am specifically saving each Zoom call to their own folder, and then I am immediately renaming. Because the smart thing that Zoom does that I do appreciate is they do an audio-only file, and they do a video and audio file, which means that you can get uh, one or the other if you're editing in an audition or if you're editing in um, like Final Cut or Adobe Premiere it gives you the opportunity to do video and audio or just audio. So it does give you all the files as an option. And uh, anyway, so yeah, I did not, um, ironically, I thought I had not saved it. I saved it. And then I had interviews the very next day and not knowing that Zoom didn't prompt you for squat, I overwrote my interview with Gary. So here we are graciously 
in um, continued uh, 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 I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We are back at it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all right, man. I, I've, I had an episode not too long ago where I simply just forgot to hit record. Uh, thank you for saying that because I do recall you said that. Yeah. I felt just terrible about not recording yours. And then I'm like, oh, God, this is just this is just awful. I was just so upset about it. I, I just couldn't believe I had done it. Um, anyway. Yes, it, happens it, to, uh, it happens to every podcaster. Uh, I know, but it's like, it, you know, you don't want the Russian roulette of, uh, God, please don't let this. Uh, oh, wait, wait, hold on. Let me make sure I hit record. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're good. Oh, funny shit. Funny. <laughs> uh, absolutely uh, hilarious. So I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, at least at least on everything imaginable, our master interview, including our discussion to like make this uh, Egyptian cave trip a reality, I have actually just uploaded as we were speaking. So it is live for members. And uh, I don't know if it's live on um, upload complete. It looks like we've premiered on YouTube also, at least uh, the first 39 minutes of our interview. Hmm. And So you're uh, posting on YouTube now? Uh, well, I was See, I, before. I, I, I can't bring I myself. Left it alone. I can't bring myself to do it anymore. You know, I posted like to, two to, episodes, and I'm like, I'm just making YouTube rich. Uh, right. So what I've done is I do it strictly as a. Um, I give people access. Um, I don't try to. I, I guess as far as the access goes, I, I try to put uh, episodes out that um, are strictly just the premieres for mm -hmm. the member area. I know that YouTube uh, is not a platform that I trust to keep uh, integrity with uh, freedom of speech. And so I don't think that'll ruin us or not for saying that, but I agree, which is why I have my own website, my own member area. I do not trust YouTube, like you said, to um, not do the draconian thing. So here we are. And what is your website? Notaliens.com. Good job. You got to say it seven times. Notaliens.com. Wait, notaliens.com. That would be the third time I said notaliens.com, which makes four. But at notaliens.com, which makes five, you can buy my book and get a membership to notaliens.com. That makes six. At notaliens.com, uh, you can sign up for a six month or 12 year, a 12 month membership, which includes two free books for 12 months, one free book for six months, which works out to basically a latte a month. I think it's like, 265 a month to be a member and we do exclusive interviews and say all sorts of crap that would get us banned on every social media site and of course uh, i have uh, exclusive content from archaeologists uh trips to egypt um we're planning new digs i'm also releasing my audiobook on my website first just so you know i'm actually 
I'm like, okay, I apparently am not a big boy. I'm not capable of getting my audiobook out in its entirety without having, um, well, basically it's going to take me forever. So I've decided to release my audiobook per chapter. So I am doing that on my website also. That's brilliant. So yeah, you can get a signed copy of the book if you don't want to go to Amazon for a few, just a few dollars more. And in all seriousness, the whole point of me having a member area and selling my book is ultimately to, of course, have people completely enrolled and interested in their past, their history, and their future. But for us, when we're talking about going to the Grand Canyon, I absolutely am absolutely putting um, everyone's um, I'm putting, you know, everyone's membership dollars into those trips. So the issue is to get a membership base so that we can go to the Grand Canyon and we can go to America's Stonehenge and I can go to South America and I can continue the actual work um, because talking about it's super fun. I love it. I do think that it's so important that we all keep everybody engaged, but then I also want to get out there in the field and I would rather talk to you and put stuff on my own website to get people involved that, and to give them that heads up first, at least so they can have some breaking points at some parties and then uh, uh, get out and actually do the work in the field. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, definitely. And I also have a membership section on everythingimaginable2020.com. There's not you much. Do. Yeah, there's, there's only a dollar ninety nine a month, price of a cup of coffee. Crap! Um, you got me beat by seventy cents. Currently, there is not much content in there. I'm trying to solicit content from my generous guests, like Jared. Um, <laughs> there will it's also happening. there will also be eBooks in there as soon as I I do them. And it's going to be fantastic. And it will also go towards trying to do some cool stuff like going to the Grand Canyon with you. I <laughs> uh, totally agree. I don't think, I, I need, honestly don't think people completely understand that it's not like it's a United Way hole where there's some CEO with a Learjet. <laughs> <laughs> We're literally working out the dollars to plan for the rope expense and the descending expense and the gas expense. And uh, quite frankly, I'm not opposed to working out the full expeditionary details and then posting those to the point where if there's a super chat or people who want to pay for that, we should consider just doing a live um uh, whether it be YouTube or otherwise, I mean, like you said, we should plan on doing like a live interview where yeah, we really plan out the details of the trip because there's some really talented climbers that I would really like to pay their way to the canyon in order to do this work. I would like to, and, I would like to interview you while hanging 2,000 2, feet off the ground. As long as you're not afraid of heights, I, I literally can make that happen. I'm so, terrified of heights, but I'll still do it. Oh, uh, for everybody out there, you know, it's one thing to get even 20 feet off the ground for people who are terrified of heights. I mean, I've taken people climbing that truly are terrified of heights. And 
our indoor climbing gym have routes that are 60 to 70 feet, depending on uh, where you are within the internal gym. Mm -hmm. And we have some places outdoor that are easily 100 feet. And 100 feet is when you're up 100 feet on a rope, um, for those afraid of heights, it is a tremendous height for Gary to commit to being. Well, here, here's, you know, the fu- here's a funny thing about me, though. Like, like when I was in high school, like I could climb the rope all the way up to the ceiling and then hang off the beam of the ceiling, and it didn't bother me. Now it's easily like 30 feet off the ground. But I hate fucking ladders. And you know what I really don't like? Standing on steep roofs with a steep incline. Yeah. But the actual height itself, I guess I'm okay with. You know, I, like, as long as I got something to hold on to, I should be fine. Yeah. I, you know, the thing about the ropes is that they're sustainable to over 4,000 pounds. Yeah. I'm not quite, people, I'm not quite there yet. Yeah. So when you get, when you get a rope that is so significantly strong, um, and you're in a harness that has hard points. Hard points are how you describe the areas that are stitched together. And the hard points, again, are so strong that uh, it's really impossible to fall other than if the rope work is done incorrectly. And there are so many things that have to be done for the rope work to be done incorrectly that... Um, it's a very safe environment. In fact, I know people go to Vegas and I remember being at the stratosphere um, uh, last summer. Was it last summer? No, summer before. So a year and a half ago, I was at the stratosphere and there was a uh, amusement ride that you sit in, you get harnessed in and it Mm -hmm. pretends to, you go down what appears to be, it's like you're in a I don't know. It's like you're sitting in an open air shuttle and the shuttle appears to launch off the side of the stratosphere. So it looks like you're about to plunge off the side and then it stops. And by stopping, it kind of bounces. So it feels like you're about to fall off the side, but you don't. And the irony is I found myself there looking at these people in this ride, being terrified, going, that is not a rope that I set. I'd be more comfortable at that point, we're a thousand feet in there. It's like 997 feet. I would be more comfortable descending, rappelling, or climbing mm-hmm. on my own ropes that I set than I would be on this machine that I have no idea. Who, I have no idea who checked the bolts or the route or the like. It's not my equipment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm I- all for doing my own. I have been on the, uh, I have ridden the tallest roller coaster in the world. Oh, where is that? It's in New Jersey. Well, actually, it's You're been, at, at the time, it was the tallest. No, I'm not kidding. It's called King Ka. If you Google it, you'll look it up, and it's, it's, it's crazy. But it was fun. I can't believe it's in Jersey. Well, yeah, it's not the tall. They, they've built one now since then. The, but at the time, it was the tallest, which was, I guess, maybe I don't know, 10 years ago. It was the tallest, fastest roller coaster in the world. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, 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 When I was younger, 
we had a choice. The Minnesota State Fair is a huge deal here in the Twin Cities and in the country. It, it used to be in the top 10, but now I think it's way up there for uh, the State Fair draws over 250, 220 to a quarter million people a day. And it's 13 days. And it's it's so fun. The State Fair in Minnesota is so different than other state fairs. And it's so, uh, it has such a crazy tradition around it. Um, I'm a huge fan, but anyway, growing up, you have an option, go to Valley fair, which is the local, uh, amusement park. They have the hundred year old roller coaster, which is all made out of wood and rickety. And I love that roller coaster. I just love going on the old, which would be probably Coney Island, New York, Mm -hmm. New Jersey, like the old hundred something year old roller coasters. I, I I'm sure there must be a ton out there, right? Not anymore. They're actually pretty much gone. Oh, bummer. Yeah. I had no idea. Coney Island's gone. The ones down the shore got wiped out by the hurricane. The ones at the music, the amusement parks have been replaced. So, yeah. Wow. Oh, I had no idea. That's such a bummer. I mean, there is um, one roller, one wooden roller coaster. It's really amazing. It's called um, El Toro. It's crazy. Like, like when you're going, it has this drop where you're going down this drop and it feels like you're being sucked out of it. In fact, people actually have been sucked out of it and died. Oh, God. What? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, Look, if you look up El Toro deaths, you'll see there's been a few. Why? Are they tiny or? Yeah, like, like sometimes the bar doesn't lock. That holds you in because oh. it's just like a little oh. bar that goes over your waist that holds you in. Oh. And if it doesn't click, when you're going down this drop, you just get sucked out. Oh, no bueno. Yeah, my, my wife hates that thing. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Not not interested. You wouldn't do um, it? Uh, no. I've done it a couple so- times. So well, yeah, but that your bananas—that's the thing. You're you you do crazy things. You are one hundred percent. You get credit for that. You are the guy that will. Who will try it? Mikey will try it. Who's Mikey? Well, this guy will. At one hundred percent. Yes, I agree. Um. Anyway, that that is. Uh, the place that we had a choice was as growing up, we had money for one or two uh, things. And that includes um, where we could go. We could either go to the place, which besides the hundred year old roller coaster, they had all the latest stuff. And that was for us in the twin cities. That was a place called Valley fair. It's an independent place. I believe the, uh, the place that's all over the country that everyone's very familiar with, I think it's called Six Flags, right? Yeah, that's the one in New Jersey that has King Dakawa's Six Flags. Okay, all right, yeah. So in Minnesota, we don't we don't have one, and I only learned about it from people who are apparently like, uh, they're they're super into, um, you know that that whole, um, environment. It's a not a you have to travel. I think the closest Six Flags from Minnesota, I think is Illinois. I don't, we, you know, we don't have one. And so Valley Fair is the independent place. 
but it has all the same kind of in in it's for everyone's vision it's the same thing it has all the latest uh, mechanical giant metal upside down twist you around make you want to throw up you know it's an independent uh amusement park but it's huge it's exp- you know it's not cheap to go to but when you go to the Minnesota State Fair you are going to learn that skipping the Minnesota State Fair is the worst idea in the world. Like as a kid, there's just no way you'd give up the state fair. It's the food. It's the crappy. There are rides, but they're all crappy, but it doesn't matter. It's the state fair. You go to the state fair in Minnesota. It's over a hundred years old. The state fair in Minnesota is just incredible. It's over a square mile. Uh, You know, has everything from fact, factory tractor equipment and everything else. I digress. Anyway, the point is between the food with everything on a stick, literally everything on a stick that you can think of from bacon to deep fried candy bars, everything on a stick to um, pizza, which I prefer not to get on a stick, but they also have alligator. That's usually in a cone, but uh, the state fair, our choices were that or the amusement park ride. And I could not, no one, my brother and I, we could never go up the state fair in Minnesota. So we never got to go to Valley Fair much. But when we finally did go, you know, the rickety old wood, 100 year old roller coaster, I love that. But the new stuff was not a fan. And then it took um, a few more years and having a daughter. And I remember going and taking her some of the stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm good with all this. And I remember getting on the ride that was, uh, it was like you sit in a strawberry, it looks like a strawberry and it twirls and then it's on a platform that twirls and you sit inside the strawberry and there's a table and you can spin the table. So the strawberry table uh, area that you're in is twirling and then the strawberries twirling and the, the, all the strawberries on this platform are twirling. All I can tell you is that I will not date myself, but I will say that it was about, 14 years ago, I sat down and I'm like, I, I told myself two things. A, I'm not going to throw up, which took me two and a half hours of me sitting there going, I am not going to throw up. And then never going on those kind of rides again, hmm. ever, which is ironic because I will climb 2000 feet. Like who cares? No big deal. I will climb a wall. Um, and be five, six stories off the ground every day and do, and do reps, you know, doing that kind of route on even an indoor gym, I'll go 60 feet, no issue, but uh, put me in one of these fast paced rides where it, it, it jumbles everything up and turns your stomach into an, some sort of like uh, enchilada. No, can't do it. Cannot do it. That's a little surprising. Right. Uh, it it makes no sense. Right, but you know, like with me though, I'll say I have similar things. Like I don't like um, rides that go upside down. I don't know why. Oh God! But like I, I, I can go like on these super high, super fast roller coasters, but but I don't like anything that that makes me go upside down. Nope. Uh I don't, I, 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 like I said, I, I lost all, and I play, I played paintball amateur pro, uh, 
So I did run around. Uh, I mean, we're talking like $60,000 purses. Uh, we went to a couple of tournaments in, in uh, Wisconsin and Illinois. And um, I am happy to say that I do love paintball. So I'm fine with getting hit by 60 caliber paintball, but I'm not okay with uh, uh, the whole upside down, shake up your stomach, make you want to throw up stuff. I, I, I just can't do it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not. I, and again, I'm not saying that it's not. Uh, uh, I could obtain that ability again. I don't understand why I can climb walls and fall 20, 30 feet off of a lead route or something and be okay. But uh, that whole idea of the shaken baby syndrome where you're being shook over and over and over. Mm -hmm. I, I cannot do it. Mm. Can't do it. Um, but yeah, I'm not, um, I'm not opposed to trying. I'm just, I know that it might be something that I'm just not capable of because of my personal, uh, I don't know, having mm. apparently my mind and body settled for as long as it has. I just did not get to do the crazy extreme rides. I know people who travel the country to all the Six Flags and those amusement parks to try those big rides and to go everywhere. Again, I, I don't know why I enjoy the classic roller coaster. I do still enjoy it, but the whole, you know, don't put me upside down in the green machine or whatever that, you know, <laughs> no. No. So yeah, you and I can go both hang over the Grand Canyon and have an interview. Yeah. I'm good with that. I'm totally good with that. You know, being 2000 feet from the ground is easier than me being spun around. Like I'm in some sort of giant human blender. So, so maybe we should tell the listeners why we want to hang off the side of the Grand Canyon. Would you yeah, like to tell them the story of Kincaid? Uh, yeah, so we have an expedition. I believe this is late 1860s, so this is 69, I think. And the cons, you know, the idea was, well, the Grand Canyon gets ex <laughs> in quotes discovered. The Grand Canyon, of course, was well known to Native peoples, and gosh knows how many peoples, including possibly very advanced. Well, the whole point, of course, of this expedition is highly advanced ancient humans um, called this uh, canyon home. And as they're exploring the canyon, it is alleged based on news reports that the can and, uh, and of course, it, it falls on April 1st. And there is uh, speculation that the entire story is hoax because it was a well-known hoaxer that uh, did it, but that's just to throw it out there. The idea was that the Grand Canyon, that the expedition was headed down a portion of the river and they found from a distance, they saw, and there are caves. There are many, many, many cave entrances within the canyon at heights that would have been from a period of time. That is also very interesting. If the canyon has cut itself which is up to almost 5,000 feet deep uh, to like 1,700 to 2,100 feet from the canyon floor, which still puts the canyon at, you know, over two and a half to 3,000 feet deep. 
there are rock cut and by rock cut, not just uh, natural caves, but caves that are uh, only called caves because they're an entrance into the ground. So it's a cave, but in reality, they are rock cut that they were established, placed and designed by an ancient high-tech human advanced civilization. And there are many, many, many of these. And at this point, uh, Kincaid and his team, they find a cave and the description is that they enter it and there's at least a, what they call a mile entrance and a mile into the ground of this massive, we're not talking like a small cave, we're talking you can walk in and continue to walk very comfortably with many people to what appears to be what they described as a citadel, a city that there was a significant uh, mile-long entrance into, excuse me, into a city that is uh, then found to have mummies, uh, Egyptian gold, Egyptian artifacts, other artifacts from other cultures, and and the reason I'm I'm editorializing as in editing out, I guess, this particulars is that. The counter statement on this is that that statement is entirely false. That is entirely a made up narrative. It was an April Fool's prank that the Smithsonian, of course, and if you're conspiratorial, the Smithsonian denies that there was any expedition that came back with any Egyptian artifacts, that there was any Egyptian hieroglyphs, that none of this existed. Uh, Scott Walter of America Unearthed ultimately did an episode on it. Uh, based on all these legends and rumors. And you can find that one on different various internet access points. And he interviews uh, Chief Clifford Mahoney, who I've met. And uh, so he interviews uh, Amer a Native Americans that would have access to the stories and legends of this area. He meets someone that actually tried to apparently repel they made it 800 feet and apparently had some heat exhaustion and they didn't go, which to me sounds a little suspect in that, uh, not that I didn't see video. They did. I saw video of them repelling and they were dangling off a rope, but I do believe any experienced climber uh, in setting a route into the Canyon would be well aware of the issues of multi-pitch climbing and or descending with cams and bolts and however it would be required to get, you know, approximately at least from the Canyon rim from where this site may be at 13 to 17 from the top 13 to 1700 feet. In order to do that, you'd be well aware of the conditions that would require you to descend to that point. However, they didn't make it. It's all discussed in this America Unearthed episode, which is super interesting. It's a totally worth watching, really neat. Uh, Scott Walter, believe, I think, ultimately flies the canyon area. But I do think that for the assessments that everybody knows from the turn of the century, uh, I personally enjoy climbing. I've climbed some tall stuff, but the reality is that this would take a very experienced and intelligent climbing crew and the right gear is actually not that expensive. It's about 15 to 
1500 to $2,000 worth of gear, uh, which are very strong ropes that hold 4,000 pounds. And Gary and I got talking and decided that we would uh, consider a expedition to the location in the, in the Grand Canyon where this Egyptian cave that no one has visited since uh, would be visited again. And so we have been prepping and planning for the last few weeks to have a expedition to this cave, which includes some very experienced and skilled climbers. And what that matters is that whether we're climbing from the base or climbing or rappelling, both circumstances require that the climbers involved, um, which when you hear the word climber, you think up, you don't think down, but we're securing ropes in order to lower supplies, in order to lower people who might not be climbers into a cave mouth that appears to be potentially based on reports, rock cut in ancient, ancient antiquities. That it is not an, uh, a natural cave, that it's a, a cave that's been uh, created through artificial means and then occupied over dynastic and by Dan, by dynastic periods, I mean Native American periods, where prior to Native American periods, it may have been occupied by um, cultures we do not know or understand. So the whole plan is to relocate that cave and or based on the many other entrances that are in that area, assuming they are public, is to descend to those locations and to look for remnants of ancient high technology. How's that for a long and short explanation? <laughs> That's great. So who do you think, do you, do you think, do, who do you think these ancient humans were? Do you think they were Egyptians that were living here? I mean, there are, one of the things that's weird about the Grand Canyon is the names of some of the places. They're named after, you know, Egyptian yeah, all places. Egyptian. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that really funny that it got named so many, um, just so many Egyptian uh, names were used. And I find that very suspicious. I mean, it, you don't have to be very conspiratorial to wonder why would uh, the people involved in the naming use so many Egyptian names? And it also says something. One of the narratives that we've been trying to deconstruct over the interviews that we've done over a long period of time is to introduce that a very high-tech ancient human society lived on the planet, that it was global, that they engineered everything from the soil to cymatic polygonal constructions, that they worked with building materials that would have dusted and gone away and that America itself and areas that we consider to have not been occupied like Siberia and uh, Eastern Asia to, uh, you know, to, yeah, to Antarctica to, of course, the millions of square miles of land that have sunken under the water that they weren't just, you know, Egyptian occupied or, you know, pick a continent that, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the Aztecs had this city, this little fishing village. And then of course it's underwater, you know, but you know, we're talking about great antiquity. We're talking about 50,000 years ago or pre younger dryas at a minimum 12 to 13,000 years ago to over 50 to 60,000 years ago that these lands, many, many lands were above water and they were occupied by this more advanced society that, uh, again, had 
been terraforming the planet using ancient engineered soil for not just growing or filtering, uh, well, also filtering carbon dioxides and heavy metals and also piezoelectric properties for communication and connections and earthquake uh, remediation through uh, cymatic polygonal constructions. So America is very suspiciously uh, wiped out. And part of that, the equation is the Yellowstone super volcano, which is talked about in many mainstream mm-hmm. academics uh, stories and shows. You can look up the super volcano that, you know, goes off estimatedly currently every 300,000 years. And that super volcano uh, has the ability to wipe out a lot of what's in America. However, maybe it doesn't actually erupt, but either way, uh, America's su- suspiciously wiped out, whether it's, um, we have remnants like in Montana, we have dolmens. Well, we have dolmens all over the country and all over the world and they look very megalithic. And we have like places in the East coast, like America's Stonehenge that Dennis Stone owns. And again, it's, uh, contains megalithic blocks and then it has very small blocks and there's a quarry nearby and people are like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, they, they dug those stones up there and it was very contemporary. Well, that's not true because again, as a builder, it's very difficult to work with hundred, you know, ton stones or 50 ton stones. And then suddenly just work with river rock. Like you don't, you don't quarry this one thing and then at simultaneously intentionally use like flaked stone. It, it mm-hmm. appears that across this country, we have a missing chapter of high-tech advanced humans that were part of that global society that was building with polygonal blocks and working with um, cymatics to control earthquakes, to transfer energy, to transfer commu- or communicate uh, through the soil itself. And again, this, this area, this, the Grand Canyon, appears to have rock cut ruins kind of like Petra Jordan where we have 300,000 plus cubic square foot rooms that just make no sense. Like who cut out a 300, not one, but um, many uh, 300,000 square foot cubic square foot rock cut rooms. Who, who did that? And what we really have is a case of people, coming across, stumbling into a, a prior society's remnants and then readapting it and reusing it. And in America, we have what looks like a very young society. We have what, what they called for a long time the Clovis people, which were these random group that allegedly came down the Bering Land Bridge. They established themselves all along the Canadian Western and the American Western Coast. And they just randomly called them the Clovis people. And that they in the last 13,000 years, uh, max ish. Well, and then it, then it turned into 30,000 years. They came across this land bridge from Siberia to America and they got really busy and they built every ruin of every temple and of everything you've ever found between North America and South America. So Central America, as in all those incredible pyramids that we go visit in Mexico And of course, all through Central America and South America, they were all built in the last 12,000, you know, younger Dryas, you know, in the last 
11 and a half to 13,000 years, mm -hmm. that all of this was done. And for the longest time, we were told that it was approximately uh, five to six million people. They came to South America and they built all these roads and all these temples and all of it was done in the last, again, 12,000 years and it was done by about five to six million people. That was the biggest population possible. And so they were really busy. Oh shit. All they did was get up, eat, sleep and build crap. It's like, shit, I'm going to start a pyramid over here. Let's go. And, <laughs> and then they were like, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? Same thing we do every tomorrow, <laughs> try and build another pyramid and bonus for everyone who knows the reference that I stole from Pinky and the Brain. But uh, the interesting thing is, is that here we are, I'm working on my book, It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us. And one of the things I'm looking at is the LIDAR scans from Guatemala. So a couple of years ago, they decide, hey, well, let's do these laser uh, scans, which eliminate the foliage. And we'll do uh, Guatemala to the tune of 5,000. Well, it's 5,000 square miles, but they're doing it in a rectangle shape and they get about 800 square miles done. And national geographic jumps on a story that says, Hey, uh, so they just completed 800 square miles and it makes international news. Uh, and it's been about two years now hmm. that they find 60,000, structures and not small buildings they find uh pyramids they find a, an incredible amount of ruins to the point where archaeologists now have to say which i bring up in the book that we have grossly underestimated south american populations it was once thought that i'm paraphrasing but this is what they said that we once thought that uh, South America was someplace that civilization went to die. And we now need to safely assume that there was at least 15 to 20 million people and that there was a place in South American history that might be the beginnings of civilization, that civilizations started in South America and moved out from there. Mm -hmm. That is a massive paradigm shift that actually I've never been able to, like we haven't taken the time to focus on in any other interview. It's interesting, um, you know, because I mean, we're looking at South America, which is obviously connected to North America. And it's even possible that it could have started here in North America then migrated down to South America because of a volcanic eruption. Yeah, and, and that therein lies the issue is that here you have archaeologists talking about now, hey, you have to, it's, it's um, uh, again, a place where even Max Uli, the father of South American archaeology in the early 1900s, 120 years ago, was doing speeches that I quote, where they were aware that the Chinese, again, this is not talked about in today's paleoanthropology. The Chinese were in South America and Central America. Okay, so I keep saying Latin, Central America. I keep I keep talking about South America, but not specifically Central America, which mm -hmm. is where Guatemala is. So we're talking about 800 square miles, and they've changed the population density 
by 15 to 20 million people is what we could safely assume. Now that's published in, in an, a magazine where, uh, which uh, National Geographic, as, as an organization, National Geographic has kind of swung hands with the British and the Smithsonian museums, which are really the same thing. And there's a lot of conspiracy, which is not un- inappropriate to assume that there's a narrative that's been pushed about manifest destiny and how advanced American civilizations were prior to European colonization. And the truth is, is that there is a significant period of American history that involves this worldwide uh, dynasty of ancient high-tech humans. And we know this because the Guatemalan LIDAR scans indicate two things that there was a significant population that did not just include Guatemala. We already know of the ruins at Lake Titicaca between Bolivia and Peru mm-hmm. and Cusco and Ollante Tambo and Waman and uh, uh, fill in the blank that's been on every other show. And the amount of ruins that are in South America from all the way down to the tip, almost to Antarctica, to, to north to pyramids in Illinois, the reality is that, or like living living fossils, like corn in, in, we have corn in Wisconsin that is a genetic strain that is at least 8,000 years old. It's not that somebody took a seed that was 8,000 years uh, old and then planted it in, in, no. It means that the corn that I'm talking about has been maintained by native peoples in Wisconsin for at least 8,000 years. So we have many different, uh, ge- gen- whether it's genetic of the food or the people themselves or Maya blue, like we, 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 there are things like dyes that are very hard to make. And Scott Walter of America on earth makes a very uh, compelling case that Maya blue, which the Mayans used actually came from Georgia. And the reality is that there are canal systems in Florida, as in you can see them from geo LIDAR satellite imaging and in Arizona, you can look up canal systems that are now desert that appear that there was very ancient, well-developed uh, canal systems where there should not be. So, and so the they were probably that, using boats going around and up the yeah. Gulf of Mexico and then up the East Coast. Yes. Yeah. Through either the natural waterways or f- through waterways that they then uh, created. So we're talking about in contemporary times and by contemporary, I mean, now anything post younger drives. So anything over 11 and a half to 13,000 years. So whenever younger drives, whenever this, the biblical flood that people think of happened is that post that uh, native peoples came in and they took over what was once a prior younger drive society. And by prior, prior to the last 11 and a half to 13,000 years, this society could be have easily already been in ruin because there's a city that you and I have talked about off the coast of Cuba that's at least at, well, it's about 2,300 feet deep or about 1,700 meters. And it has not been above water except at least in the 50 to 60,000 year ago range. So as we continue to do LIDAR scans and look at South America, the other reason I was saying that they're high technology beyond the genetics of the corn or anything else, the issue is the megalithic construction. So what you frequently see in these 
dynastic peoples who have come along, survivors of great floods that are primitive. They've come into they've come into cities that were destroyed and devastated, and then what they've done is they've interpreted what they've seen and they've restacked, they've recompiled the blocks, they've adapted the culture to uh, what they found. Yeah, they've married themselves. So what's happened is is you'll see a hundred ton megalithic basalt andesite quartzite some crazy giant really hard stone that they have no business working with and that'll be like four staircase steps and it'll be 20 feet wide and it goes for like i mean it's like a it's like an 800 ton block and then suddenly everything within the pyramid structure will be mud brick Mm -hmm. or really small and that that's just not how people build things unless they're adapting and picking up a prior society, something that they're venerating and mystifying a prior society's buildings. And so what they're doing is they're adding on and readapting these old structures. And as we find this, it's super exciting because these LIDAR scans are going to reveal that as we pull the foliage off of some of these structures mm-hmm. not only are we going to find the super freeways that they're you know seeing through the lidar that there's these roads that go miles or kilometers between different city sites but as they continue uh now that they can safely say there's 20 million people that's just from guatemala that's from just from that research you could extrapolate if they're willing to say that safely with the national geographic that's a that's a paradigm shifter right there because we were just told that there was a lot of busy beavers at five to six million people throughout the entire continent from North America down to South America. That's like three areas. And they, they're they saying that five to six million people. Well, now they're saying 15 to 20 million, but I don't think that's realistic. I, I think we're going to find uh, with all the engineer and again, uh, Terra Preta is an engineered soil in Brazil, I think. And it's not only in Brazil, it's in Central America. It's in uh, French Guiana, it's in uh, Liberia, it's in uh, Northern Africa, it's in South, uh, it's in um, Australia. And that's just one version of engineered soil. And I think what we're going to find is that it's not 15 to 20 million people based on LIDAR scans in Guatemala. By the time they're done LIDAR scanning the whole works, <coughs> and Excuse me. we're talking like, we're talking billions of people in, is what I'm saying is that I don't think it's going to work out to hundreds of millions. I think it will work out to a prior <coughs> diluvian, prior flood society of billions of people that are in excess of what we think currently is the largest population on Earth. Do you Which think, that in itself. Do you think it's possible that the Gulf of Mexico was all a landmass? Yeah, like when you look at that city off of Cuba... I do a map in my book about, and my gosh, that map alone cost a lot of money for me to do the research and the time and the physical cost of hiring an illustrator slash cartographer to do the work. I include a map that honestly cost me almost a couple thousand dollars. If I don't count my time, just the actual cost out of pocket, it was like a fifteen or $1,600 map for me to draw for people. And this map, uh, I, and, and it's not the money, it's the it's the four years of research mm-hmm. and the hundreds of hours to make it happen. And the Caribbean was more of uh, between Texas and Florida. It was more of a lake. 
And so was the Mediterranean. And so was the Baltic Sea where you had Doggerland. And so was areas around Jakarta and Indonesia and New Zealand and New Zealandia. And I'm not talking hundreds of millions of years ago. I'm talking about like pre-Younger Dryas in that 50 to 60,000 year range. I include those maps. And it's incredibly important because people need to get their heads around the landmass that really was the coastal regions, which would be the big cities. Right now, you're not understanding that when you look in the deep antiquities, you think, okay, well, we're looking at the map that was. No, no, it's not. It's the equivalent of looking at Ohio to Louisiana and Nevada, north and south would be your west and east coasts. So if you think of America from Nevada on the west, and if you think of it from Ohio south on the east, I think about everything from Pennsylvania to um, Maine and New Jersey and <clears throat> New York and, and all the coastal areas and, uh, you know, the, peop- the places that people, Myrtle Beach, you know, all of it gone. And to think, well, what story could you tell yourself about America if you just had these as your coastlines? Like Nevada is your west coast. <laughs> and you know, that, that is a significantly different um, uh, manifestation of what you think of as the world map. And that's exactly what we're dealing with now. We look at the world map and we go, well, you know, I can imagine this society, you know, Jared and Gary are talking about uh, because, you know, in their minds, you know, or while you're listening, you might be looking at the map of the world and it's not an accurate map. The Caribbean was a lake. You should look at it. And the, the, and here's the other thing I talk about this in the book is talk to tribal people in the area and what they thought their very legends around the Caribbean was there was a great flood and then the mountains became islands and there was much fish. So it has a very, po- <laughs> talking about a positive on a catastrophic disaster. <laughs> the, I think they're the Torino or t- Tahino. They, um, they, yeah, they, they suddenly had a lot of fish to fish. Mm-hmm. And so, yay, it's like they were devastated and they lost all their land and mountains became islands, mm-hmm. but uh, they had a lot of fish. Yeah, so they were probably huzzah. tired of eating buffalo. <laughs> right. Or, or, or woolly mammoth or whatever. Right. And, and again, that, that only, is that a legend? Here's what's interesting is that I, uh, I, again, I think a lot of people, are more conscious of native traditions that the people that you need to listen to are indigenous people, that their oral traditions have not been manipulated like some of our histories through Gregorian monks and uh, particular Western faiths. Uh, We, you know, our historical record has been manipulated. When you write it down, people change it. The oral traditions were sacred. You pass down the oral tradition although people could change it. I mean, ultimately anybody can lie or say something different, but I do think that if we were to go toe to toe, I think oral traditions are generally uh, more well-maintained. And I think that these people talking about the great rise in waters and the, and you know, the, uh, the ocean coming where it was once mountains, you know, you got to wonder, is it the Younger Dryas? Is it this event the last 11 and a half or 13,000 years ago? Or was it the prior event uh, 50 to 60,000 years ago? We we actually don't have 
an accounting of when the flood is that they're referring to. We assume in the West that it's biblically based, that, oh, they're referring to Noah's flood. They're definitely referring to the younger Dryas. But what if, in truth, the reality is that we're talking about um, even further back, that we're talking about uh, that younger Dryas slash effect 50 or 60,000 years ago where that city off of Cuba and so many other places and things like the Bimini Road in the Caribbean, what if they all went underwater in that 50 to 60,000 year ago flood? And the younger Dryas was yet another final nail, probably the final nail in the coffin. But to me, it appears that this global society really got their butt handed to them you know, whatever that event was approximately 50,000 years ago. And the Younger Dryas was another one. But then we still have the stories of Atlantis. And I think the one thing that's true about Atlantis is the idea that uh, it's the last time uh, earthly survivors of catastrophic and or weaponized catastrophic events saw advanced ancient humans on the planet. That the That the story of Atlantis is really the last story and bastion of a metropolis openly on the surface uh, held by advanced humans that ultimately said, look, you know, we cannot, we just can't, we just can't be here. It's, we're too exposed. Mm-hmm. They had to just move on and, so for as much as they say, oh, it was a, it was a shameful city, and they were arrogant and they destroyed themselves. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think that the, I think the recot structure, the Eye of Africa, Northern Africa, really represents, likely, what Atlantis was. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, here's the other thing: the recot structure, i.e., the Eye of Africa, is super interesting looking. It looks like there's Atlantis. a pop- yeah, well, no, it it straight up measures out the locations of the of the mountains are accurate, the locations of the known world in the period that Solon would have heard of Atlantis. It is accurate. Everything about the recut structure is accurate. The Eye of Africa is accurate in every respect. It has bones of elephants that they found. It has bones of sea creatures. It was clearly a saltwater ocean level. Uh, location at one point the catch is now it's about 7800 feet above sea level so that's kind of a problem but not not if you count plate take tectonic uh shifting etc you know that goes down the uh city off of cuba comes up the reality is we could be talking about an event that wasn't during the younger driest but an event that was 50 or 60,000 years ago could have mm-hmm. been part of that same we, we seem to think that, well, it has to date. We've been marrying a lot of our stories to the last flood, assuming that that's the last flood that anybody was talking about. We don't, we take it for granted that in reality, they're, they're talking about even a prior flood and or like even the Egyptians, the dynastic Egyptians who told Solon, who ultimately is responsible for how Plato found out about the Atlantis, is that they said, hey, look, you know, we Egyptians are very old. We've had a dynastic kingship for 36 or 34 and a half thousand years. So the reality is that 
the Egyptians themselves dynastically kind of start to head closer to that not younger Dryas, you know, uh, event, but the one that happened, whatever the hell happened 50, 60,000 years ago, it happens. <coughs> earth, earth, you know, there are survivors, mm -hmm. earth is devastated, but then within, and I don't think that's impossible, but it took, you know, maybe 12,000 years at that period. So it's, you know, it's, let's just say it's 60,000 years ago that it happened. It took almost 12,000 or, or no, let's say it's 50. So then it took 12,000 years before the dynastic Egyptians had shown up at all in enough of a quantity to even establish a kingship, which they dynastically say lasted 34 and a half to 36,000 years. So they, they come across, uh, you know, hundreds of them, dozens of them. They come across the obliterated uh, North African Egyptian pyramid structures and they uh, start to adapt it one city at one time. And 36 and a half thousand years ago, they establish a kingship that uh, goes on a path of restoring and managing what we consider dynastic Egypt today. But in reality, from the Great Pyramids on Giza to the Sphinx to all the other polygonal cymatic keystone cut uh, structures, that they all existed in that, you know, beyond 40,000 years ago, that they were part of that same global structure that includes the city off of Cuba, that includes that there is polygonal masonry and walls on Easter Island. That means they're at, at Sacsayhuaman and Tiwanaku and Cusco and uh, Lake Titicaca, you know, that whole area between um, Bolivia and Peru and the Nazca lines and the Bolivian uh, the the Bolivian Nazca lines and the Jordan so ones. Do, and, do you think the same thing that wiped out the dinosaurs could have wiped out these early humans? Because we are looking well, around the same time period. Well, and there's yeah, therein lies the issue is that did it is it the nineteen mile wide diameter crater that we just found in Greenland? They're right. saying and, and that, that that would also explain a huge tectonic shift. Yeah, there's this whole theory of hydrostatic plate shifting where uh, water from the ocean seeped under the plates and that eventually there was a buildup of, of, of vapor, of steam that eventually, uh, well, that's the way I'm describing it. But the, the particulars are just that suddenly there was this massive like um, release of steam and water from under the tectonic plates that ultimately caused violent plate shifting that caused like the recot structure, uh, it, the eye of Africa to go from like sea level to 7,800 feet for Lake Titicaca, which is entirely a saltwater lake to go from a zero to 13,000 feet for the uh, um, city off the coast of Cuba to sink. And so there is a, a definite, belief that this tectonic plate shifting caused that event. But the question is, did it happen because of one of these meteor impacts like the Yucatan or there's a massive crater mm -hmm. off the coast of India? There are multiple impacts that have hit. Okay. So specifically the 
Mexico, uh, they called the dinosaur killer that off the Yucatan Peninsula, there was an impact that was approximately 64 million years ago that just wiped everything out as far as caused a nuclear winter, um, killed the large fauna. Well, see, see, that's what I wonder, like, if that's what created the Gulf of Mexico was an impact. Maybe it was land and it was a huge impact and... Because it kind of looks like it has the shape of a crater. Yeah, and, and therein lies... Uh, I, I do think that it's difficult to... For us, unless we're given a map, an honest map, like, did it really take until last summer or the summer before to, like, to identify this Greenland crater? I mean, was it really was there not a military map that already showed it? And so we keep changing. It's important that we just build the theories we can off the information we have. But when you have a 19 mile wide diameter crater that they're saying could only be 12,000 years old, but it could be 65 million years old too. They're, you know, they're saying both, right? So was it the Yucatan hit and the Greenland hit? Were they the same? Were they, were they spread out by 64 million years? Was it the hit that happened at the south tip of India? Was it some other mysterious crater that we haven't identified either in the Arctic or the Antarctic areas? Uh, these are all uh, plausible, truly uh, uh, factual hits on the planet that would produce, you know, I think the impact for just to give an example, the impact of Greenland a uh, 19 mile diameter crater, the impact they said was worth 400 Nagasaki's or Hiroshima's. And as far as for his bomb impact quality or uh, impact, as far as a wall of heat, it would have been like almost 4,000 degrees. Um, it's an explanation that they offer to what destroyed Tanis and which is, was the capital of Egypt in antiquity Tannis looks like it's been obliterated by a high heat impact event, but, or, you know, and then Robert Schock has a theory on solar flares, but if it was a weaponized, I mean, again, if you have a society that can control frequencies and scalar waves and the, you know, that's our Tesla term for us is to mm -hmm. understand weaponized waves and frequencies and that's scalar waves. And that's something that was a Tesla invention, at least in modern times, but in the past, could it have caused massive obliteration to 1000 ton, stone, ton stone statues? Could it have toppled the city of the ancient capital of Tanis? Could it have uh, caused vitrification or high heat and then cooling of stone statues and polygonal masonry? Yeah, absolutely. But we have a problem. Some of those statues and temples and everything else, well, buildings, they've all been laying there for, if they have been abandoned for 50 or 60,000 years, they've held up pretty well. At the same time, they could show some flaking after a period of time. You know, it's not like uh, it would be, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be vitrification, which is a high heat and then cooling, whether it's weaponized or whether it's a natural disaster. Um, you know, it's just it, the, all of them are legitimate possibilities and it's super, it's just, it's important for us to cover 
all of it and to be aware of it as we try to discern how did these cities stop being cities. And, and it is important when, because again, dynastic peoples are interesting, but we can tell from the technology, from the large polygonal masonry and the items like super translucent and well-machined uh, vases and the schist disc mm-hmm. and so many items out of Egypt, but so, it shows so, a high so How far, how old do you think humans are? Hundreds of thousands of years? Or are we talking millions? Yeah, that's the crazy thing is that we you can just pick up forbidden archaeology from Michael Cremo. And the fact is, is that in the 1800s, when humans started looking at paleoanthropology from a strictly science standpoint, it made them super nervous. And this is prior to, uh, you know, Darwin, there wasn't a published document on Darwin didn't publish, I think, till the late 1950s, 1850s. So it was like 59 or 57. But what's relevant is that Michael Cremo does a good job of actually revisiting, physically revisiting sites like the Red Crag. Um, there, there were sites from Europe to Table Mountain in California. There are many Table Mountains, so don't get stuck on one or the other, that show anatomically correct human anthropology and actual bones paleoanthropology they have found anatomically correct humans in layers of earth that are 5 million mm-hmm. 20 million 60 million uh plus years old including a boot print that had stitching that was found in uh stone that had petrified or that had hardened that was not not stone over 150 million years ago the reality is now there are lots of examples of stone hardening or this this, yeah. this makes sense to me like I, I was just looking some stuff up as we're talking and, and, and i was just like i had asked the question about um you know about humans and dinosaurs existing at the same time and this is one of the things that came up and you you might find this kind of funny it says around 66 million years ago at the end of the the creation period an asteroid struck the Earth, triggering a mass extinction that killed off the dinosaurs and some 75% of species. But here's where it gets funny. It says, somehow, <laughs> mammals survived. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is that somehow? <laughs> um, yeah. I think that... It's, Something's it's wrong cool. there. Right? And, and this is a problem. It makes people squirm in their seats. It's like, okay, wait, we've had, again, we have this in the West. We just overly confidently reference Greeks, Roman, um, Christian history. It's very hard for us as Westerners to truly fully appreciate the Hindu Vedas and a religion that is also based in facts, based in stories that are uh, not just mythological, but are stating uh, the gods have been at it for millions of years, and by gods, just advanced humans. Mm-hmm. They had already deified and mystified it, but the reality was we have Hindu Vedas, actual literature dating so many thousands of years prior to the Bible. And it shows the society that was documenting what they were seeing. And that alone is 
uh, in a prehistory and in a time period that is fascinating to no end. And we have tons in TV shows and conversations about the Hindu Vedas and the Vermana and the the vehicles that they were the gods were flying around in, and apparently using what it very much describes as nuclear weapons, energy devices, anti-gravity, uh, floating cities. They, these were not just allegorical. They, they these are cities, and and again, the the Vedas are discussing millions of years of mm-hmm. human history, where the Bible discusses ten thousand ish, six to ten thousand, and and again, it's not the Bible isn't a book, the collection Mm -hmm. of stories that they collected to make the Bible, they're ultimately saying, okay, well, everything's six to 10,000 years old, but the Hindu Vedas should be taken with the same respect that the Christian faith is. And on that note, you have uncomfortably tens of millions of years of human history, but you do have bones and anthropological evidence that is showing the existence of humans way outside of the narrative of, oh, we came out of Africa. And the very theory for that, again, if you and I only built technology out of the the math we invented Mm -hmm. in Newtonian times, well, we wouldn't have cell phones. Yet there's a theory of evolution put out by a guy 140 years ago, Darwin. And instead of tabling all the facts and shaping new theories, like we shape new technologies, we just throw out facts that don't match the theories. That's just, that's beyond irresponsible. It's criminal, yeah. to be honest. I think. Yeah, there, there's something, like, I, 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 like, I still think, like, like, it's possible that, that the Americas are probably where it all started. You know, it, it's kind of funny, like, maybe just went, like, full circle. We just kind of rediscovered where we came from. Yeah, um, but but my question, one of my other questions is like you know, do you think like again? I know this is like basically the premise of your book is that that these advanced humans are still still exist and are living beneath the earth. Yeah, and, and I think that they're yeah. And, and, and with that, you know, with, with the UFOs, you know, a lot of the UFO sightings are usually by nuclear and military facilities. Do you think that that all correlates with this? Like maybe they're trying to prevent us from wiping ourselves out and wiping them out again? Uh, repeat that one more time? To wipe out us or to wipe out Well, them? it would be both. Actually, if we wiped out the planet, we'd be killing ourselves and them, possibly. So it's interesting. I I do think that... Uh, I, I do think that there is uh, something to be said about what are they what are they up to and i don't think that they're first we're saying them as in they're together and coherent Mm -hmm. sometimes i wonder based on like the sightings above nuremberg where we have the famous lithograph of basically and a whole bunch of people getting radiation poisoning and and it appears that a battle took place above nuremberg the question is are they were they advanced humans battling a remnant of a a galactic or non-planetary threat uh, or is it and was it more likely an internal conflict between the groups that survived like whatever i think we had a global society for sure prior to 50 to 60,000 years ago there is definitely 
I, I think based on what we're seeing of the Egyptian, of the Giza plateau, uh, the total global indications of cymatic polygonal construction and engineered soil, I think we had a global civilization. Then they get hit and they get reduced. Um, and I do think that it's possible that those groups did not agree with each other mm-hmm. and they started fighting. So the that therein lies the issue is are they even one coherent group? I don't I don't know, but I don't think so. And maybe, maybe they are now, but the technology that we're discussing kind of plays into part of the answer to your question. One is we're, we're learning now from nanotechnology that we could create nano factories that are yeah. like 60 to 150 atoms in size. We understand that we can create nanobots that can enter a single cell within the human body. We understand that we can 3d print organic um, uh, parts, but we can also uh, create nanobots that might, in our near future, be able to reprogram a broken cell, like just recode it. And I think that that's a a really great advancement, but that's us and that's our current understanding of technology. We don't look at viruses and bacteria as technology. We think that they're in quotes, natural, random. We don't consider that we are, when I keep saying, and we've talked about before that we're in safe mode, the reality is that the safe mode may actually be part of a society that is um, not fully aware that the that whether it's our genes or these funguses or viruses are part of really a giant, very complex computer that what we have created as machinery is very crude compared to what our ancient advanced relatives have been using, which looks like, again, natural or magic or... Uh, uh, some deified ability when in reality it's just the way everything was designed to work together. So now we look at um, uh, what's what these Tic Tac and other UFO encounters, then we think, okay, well, that must be from somewhere else. The reality is that not only could it be local, but have they coherently been a single entity or group? Or is it multiple organizations? Have they been hoarding technology where they don't share with each other? And has that been a difficulty for them to reachieve the genetic and or uh, biological independence that we think we're on our track to get? So I do, that's what I wonder is personally, what what does this advanced human race really um what, what are they really back in control of? Because I think even if you're aware of a prior technology, like we're aware, I mean, that's the whole point of sci-fi. That's the whole point, point of us speculating within fiction is that uh, we maybe dream of something and then we make it a reality. Mm-hmm. Even if you're uh, an advanced ancient human society that's fallen through some massive devastation and you're aware of, you know for a fact that you can create a genetic technology to end aging or to manipulate cells or to create better online displays with your weaponized systems in your spacecraft. All that might be within your vernacular, but if it's out of your ability because of this last catastrophe, you have to fight for every piece of old information that you guys can find. And if you have humans that were survivors on the surface for maybe tens of thousands of years or even hundreds, you might be competing with them to find those resources 
And I, I think it's kind of a combo personally and that, you know, they retreated to rock cut underground bunkers and whatever happened, happened. And the humans that survived on the earth, they, they are our relatives. They are our um, direct, tough, tougher than nails descendants that were not in privilege of uh, quick bio uh, engineered medical equipment that allowed them to recover from their issues. I don't think it was a sustainable program after they came out of the bunkers the last time. Now, whether it was 50, 60,000 years ago ish, or maybe the disaster ended and they didn't really come out until that, like around the dynastic Egyptians say their Kings list goes back to. So maybe, maybe these ancient event humans didn't even come above ground <laughs> until 36,000 years ago also. Mm-hmm. And then that's when, you know, again, the obvious Atlantis was established <laughs> in that they knew who Atlanteans were and that was a thing. But, uh, you know, eventually that city, it was like, okay, this is too obvious. We can't keep interacting with these people. We're going to advance again too far. And so here we are with this, these unknowns. And the point is to do the work and figure out where we're at. And that includes going to the Grand Canyon. That includes going to America's Stonehenge and doing some digging there. And, uh, you know, I'm planning to work in South America to. And going to Antarctica. Yeah. I, I, that, you know, those are the, those are our answers. You know, they, the general population isn't expecting us to go do that, but it, it, if it really comes down to uh, managing cold and money, I don't think it's an unobtainable un, I mean, it's not, a cheap trip at all. Don't get me wrong, but I do think it's reasonable to make the expedition. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so too. Just yeah. Have, we could just have a plane drop us off. Oh, that would be wild. I mean, who wants to do the work, you know, who wants to just actually go there? That would suck. I would go. Well, yeah, but no, what I mean is I don't think that they're really going to, I don't think they're really going to drop us off, you know. I think they're going to make us work for it. Yeah, well, th- this is why people have to go to our websites and become members. No kidding. Buy our books. Uh, Listen to yeah, the podcasts. No. Yeah, please. It's, it's exactly why. And it's not unreasonable for what you're spending on gas station drinks. I mean, for what we're charging, the point is to do the work and uh, we're providing entertainment. Like you said, I mean, even the stuff you have done, it's been worth it. You know, it's definitely, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's worth uh, participating in a way that um, it, it, it's important that we uh, support the, 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 you know, here we are, we're, we're talking about doing, um, um, expeditionary work. I don't think that we're incapable of, uh, getting it done. It's just a matter of, uh, viewers, listeners subscribing and 
helping us out. So it's, it's helping us out. It's that simple. They're going to see the work first. They're going to hear the videos. I mean, they're going to hear the interviews, see the videos and have a chance to be on the cutting edge of some, what I think is a Renaissance in archeology. span Cause if they sit around the way for, for science to give them answers, it could be waiting a long time. God, your whole lifetime. <laughs> no going around it. That's, whole why, that's why, you know, I mean, it's important. You know, I think, um, or it, it is time for a new age of exploration because if we wait on science and technology and everything else, we'll be waiting forever to get answers. But if people take it upon themselves to start investigating the unexplained or the mysteries that are still left, we could get there. Yeah. Yeah, hey, I is, think is that, that a train? this is... As usual, I am in studio and I'm 20 feet <laughs> off of a train track. And yes, it's, that's Choo Choo Bob for anyone who's interested. Yeah, it is a very large train going by because in the Twin Cities between Minneapolis and St. Paul, there's a nine mile train yard. And I am watching a very large multi-engined uh, train go by. And it is significant. It is not more than 30 feet from the, like from where I'm physically sitting, mm -hmm. I'm about 12 feet from the windows and from the windows to the train, a skeet skeet is probably another 25 feet. So yeah, it's about, the train really is about 30 feet away. I love the train. <clears throat> Every time I get so, talk to you, we get the train. You know, with me, you get the dog barking. Uh, so far, I haven't heard the dog. Yeah, he was barking earlier. Oh, crazy. Every, every episode, he barks for at least a half hour. <laughs> he what, is, what kind of dog is it? He wants to be heard. He's a, all dogs. He, he's a French bulldog. <laughs> oh, those things are cute. Yeah, he's, he's very cute, but he, he's a mess. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, how, how what's his name? <clears throat> Bubba. But it's spelled B-U-B-B-H-A, like Buddha. That's classy. And, uh, yeah, he, he loves to, to pee on the furniture and chew on my leg. That's what he does. <laughs> <laughs> He's crazy. <Terrible>. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Perfect dog for me. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> So before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? Yeah, so I am uh, for exactly that, notaliens.com. I have a member area, like you said. I'm, I have a six-month and 12-month membership and a monthly. Uh, the six-month and 12-month come with free books that I sign and send out to you, either one or two if you go with the full year. Uh, it works out to 265 a month for the membership, but that's at notaliens.com which includes exclusive interviews and photographs. And, and one of those interviews is with me. It is now that I didn't delete it. You're welcome. <laughs> and, and then, uh, of course, you can always, for a few dollars less, you can get my book on Amazon. I co-host Conflict Radio. I have interviews that are up and coming. So I'm always on Conflict every week. And then I am doing for the Forbidden Knowledge News Conference 
uh, the first weekend in April. I will be the opening presenter on Friday and I will be doing a group presentation on Saturday. That is awesome. You are really building a huge following. I hope so. Uh, that's the plan. I, I, I would, I would like that. I should, I, I should hope that, uh, I'll have to talk to you about numbers after we're off the air. Yeah. It's good. And people are listening, you know, and, and anybody out there who thinks like it's easy to get a following doing this kind of stuff, it isn't, it takes a ton of work. You know? Yeah, it does. It's the, the amount of work that you have to put in post-production and the, and the work and the time that you take and I take, it's, it really is an effort to get this all done. It's just not that it's not as simple as you and I chatting the the work that goes in that you have to do to get this episode out is, is pretty tremendous. But it's rewarding. It's the most rewarding thing I do. Yeah. Which is absolutely why I appreciate, like you said, people signing up for your site or mine or both. It's, it's so ridiculously appreciated. I can't yeah. thank everybody enough. Yeah. Cause I can't make a career out of making orange juice forever. No, apparently some people have, but that, that would be too old school. <laughs> Sunkist. <laughs> oh yeah, with some more bubbly. Yeah, I, I can't. I can't drink that stuff that uh, comes from concentrate. It's weird. Oh, I used to, but you know, I went paleo about ten years ago, and the issue is, uh, um, I I can't do more than thirty grams of sugar a day. So a glass of orange juice is about thirty five forty, and. Mm-hmm. I grew up. I love. I love orange juice. I I drank so much orange juice growing up. It's not even funny, and I I just don't do more than about thirty five grams of sugar a day, mm-hmm. and so between that, that's carbs included. So I can tell you that I feel really great every day, but I can't. And I can tell you to this day, I don't know if anyone's eaten more sugar than me. Gosh, I used to sit down and eat three packages of, of Hostess Ho Hos in one sitting. I could eat a box of little Debbie's like nobody's to business. I mean, I, I, I could down a quart of uh, Hagen Dazs like no tomorrow. So I know very much what it's like to uh, eat whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah. You know, um, it's interesting. I still eat, I still don't eat that much sugar. I eat a little bit of candy. I couldn't binge eat it, I guess. But I don't like the high ups and downs anymore. From it. No, I think that I could do. Um, it's 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 difficult as far as uh, the amount of uh, the enjoyment. We think that there's an enjoyment factor attached to it, but there really isn't. Yeah. It's, the price is too high. It's like drinking and driving. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm going to blow my sugar content, I'll I'll go low sugar and do the like you said, I'll do the I'd rather do the uh I'd rather drink a little bit than uh eat my sugar. Well, and I like very dry cider and I like scotch. Yeah. So, when I'm drinking, it ironically is a higher alcohol content, which of course is still sugar, but as it translates into the human body, I do try to keep that into account uh for you know what I'm going to have in a day. So 
I blend a lot of vegetables and do a lot of stuff, but I'm not remotely, I'm like anyone, I'm not perfect at all, not even close. It's just, we all have a major addiction of food. It, it does lend to our positive gene expression. I can tell you that going paleo for me, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. And it does contribute to the meditation and that higher consciousness. And imagine waking up, uh, even if you don't have enough sleep, within about five to 10 minutes of waking up till you go to bed, having the same energy level. That's what I would mm. explain to people is that imagine having the same, a lot of people have, or describe a, a positive energy window in the afternoon. Like for, there's a few hours, you know, one to five hours where they feel like incredible in the afternoon. And imagine feeling like that from the minute, you know, like five, 10 minutes after you wake up till you go to bed, having that same energy level all day. That's, that's what, uh, I've been able to achieve with the dietary position I put myself in, but that that's just one layer. There are many layers. That's it's all part of positive gene expression, which has been kind of a ongoing paleo term in the last eight years, but it's all about, it literally is the adage garbage in garbage out. And if you eat really positively and you start tweaking your uh, nutrients, that ultimately you can achieve higher levels of consciousness. It's yet again, a whole nother episode, which. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, man. This is fun. Yeah. It's we covered a I, lot I of ground. We did. And, and we are legit talking about doing an actual expedition. So I think uh, hopefully people can get on board with your channel and mine and, and help support us and uh, sign up or buy some books and, help us towards that goal. Cause I, I, I think it's very realistic for us to go actually be the first people at that cave in the next, uh, uh, few months that have been there in over a hundred years Yeah, and, and, or uh, whatever. And they can support us at not aliens.com and everything imaginable 2020.com. Nice. Thanks All again. Right, man. Thanks for coming on and hang on one second. I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.